Well, Ray's podcast audience, the community that's built around this, we have a very special episode for you today because for the first time ever, I believe, Brent Grinna is stepping aside as host, bringing in the uh, his heir to the throne, J.D. Beebe here, president of Evertrue and previously co-founder of Thank You to interview the one and only Brent Grinna. So Brent, how's this feel? I have not been nervous. We've done almost 100 episodes, and for some reason, I'm a little nervous right now. So thanks for having me, JD. You got it. Listen, it's the least I could do. Um, I know the audience and the, the community has been clamoring to get to know Brent more. You've been uh, the consummate host, introducing, as you mentioned, over 100 different great conversations with leaders in the higher ed advancement space. So today, uh, it's my uh, distinct pleasure to turn the tables on you so that our audience can get to know a little bit more about the man behind the voice and behind the company. So I want to start way, way back. Bring me back to Postville, Iowa. Although I've heard in other write-ups, you might have actually grown up in uh, in another town. It wasn't Postville. That's right. It was, it was Frank Frankville, near Frankville, Iowa. Yeah, just a couple of uh, miles west of Postville. That's right. And um, so you just want the, the quick life story. Yeah, I, I actually was... Um, my mom and dad both grew up in Northeast Iowa on farms. And for whatever reason, after they got married, they decided to move to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which not a lot of people did in the late seventies in Northeast Iowa. Uh, and so I was actually born in, in Florida. Uh, when I was 18 months old, mom and dad decided to move not only back to Iowa, but back to the exact farm that my dad grew up on. And so that's where my brothers and I uh, grew up a, a 160 acre farm, pretty much the, the most quintessential Iowa surroundings, you could imagine, cornfields as far as the eye could see. My nearest neighbor was about a mile away, uh, and that was sort of our deal. And you said you grew up with two brothers. Who are, who are your brothers' names? Right, yes. Yeah, so I'm the oldest of three. Brad uh, is my middle brother, who currently lives in Denver, Colorado. And then Blaine is my youngest brother, who is in the Boston area here. So you got three three Bs. That's right. My dad's Three said B brothers. He got to the Bs in the baby book, and he was tired of tired of going through the names. And so he just stopped there. That's the room. That's the rumor. Well, as JDBB, I think he made the right choice. That's the, the best uh, letter of them all. Um, and just because again, there's, there's, there's photos that circulate of your younger days. Uh, you were a, you, you had some prize winning pigs for H pigs. That's right. Yeah. We took pets to a whole new extreme on the farm. Uh, we had a, a cow named Charlie and then we, had a few different uh, sets of pigs over the, the years. And uh, one of my first kind of formative leadership experiences was in the 4-H club. And so I had the opportunity to show our pigs at the county fair. And we actually uh, took the grand champion pen of three in Winnesheet County in 1995, which is pretty much, that's about as good as it gets. I was going to say, that's the Cadillac of... Uh... Pig, pig, uh, pig contests. People think it's about the blue ribbon, but it's not. It's actually the purple ribbons that you really want. Yep. There you go. Um, well, now this is going to be a kind of a theme throughout. So just, just kind of uh, uh, showing my cards here. In those early days, in, uh, in the Iowa days, were, th were there any sort of mentors, whether it be, you know, joking, perhaps jokingly in the, in, the, in the pig game, but also just as you were growing up, any mentors that you uh, sought out or found in your early days that would go on to influence you throughout the rest of your education and, and career? 
Yeah, for, for me, it was um, always around athletics. I mean, there was not a lot going on in Postville, Iowa. We didn't have a movie theater. There was no fast food. We didn't even have a stoplight. We just had a four-way stop in the middle of town where we would occasionally just park our cars and hang out. That was pretty much the, the peak social activity. Uh, and other than that, we played sports. And so I had an opportunity uh, to have a couple of really uh, meaningful coaches. One, uh, Paul Youngblood was our uh, little league coach. He was my basketball coach. And man, when you talk tough love, that was the name of the game with, with coach Youngblood. Um, and then I had another coach who uh, was my head football coach, Chris Evers, who really, um, you know, pushed me to look at the opportunity for, for college football to be an on-ramp to pursuing higher education, which was always a dream of mine. I, I've mentioned before that my parents didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And so just going to college period was always the dream that we talked about, the goal that we had set and, um, you know, being fortunate to uh, do well enough academically and athletically, that really started to open up some doors. And, um, and my coach encouraged me to, you know, send my VHS tapes to Ivy League schools and to schools that I had never even heard of in places that I had never thought about traveling to. And I'm really glad that I did, uh, which was ultimately um, what, you know, what governed my, my college choice. And talk to me about that college choice. Where was it? And tell me about when you arrived there. What was it? Was it different than the, uh, than the Iowa Plains? Well, other than being in Florida when I was under two years old, I had basically never traveled east of Chicago until I was in high school and I got to go on one trip to Washington, D.C. And other than that, it basically was recruiting trips. And so I remember my first recruiting trip was to Dartmouth and we flew into Manchester, New Hampshire. And it was my basically my first time in the Northeast, first recruiting trip, uh, went up to, to Dartmouth was just blown away by the experience. I remember my, my, my host on that recruiting trip was from Long Island. I could not understand anything he said. Uh, I mean, I was so fresh off the farm. I can't even describe it. And, and I left that recruiting trip definitely going to Dartmouth. And then there was a recruiting, oh, right. which was pretty much wherever I went, then I was definitely just going there. And uh, given that it wasn't like we had the dream had been go to college, but it was never, Hey, we really want you to be able to go here or, you know, let's work really hard so you can go there. These schools were not even on, on the radar. Um, and so once, once I decided that, you know, pursuing, you know, the Ivy league would be the right combination of athletic sort of level plus um, uh, academic opportunity, then it was just, um, you know, me kind of going school to school. I, I remember going to Princeton and, just being blown away by, by that campus and experience. And then um, ultimately went to Brown on my last recruiting trip. And I'd be lying if I said the fact that the head football coach happened to have grown up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, didn't have an enormous ultimate uh, impact on my decision. And, uh, and so I, I decided to go to, uh, to, to go to Brown in part because of that. And I felt really comfortable and, you know, being a long way from home, that was important. Um, but they also had really great language programs. And I was, um, I'd grown up in a town that, you know, as much as it was surrounded by cornfields in Iowa, there was massive 
immigration to that town. We had the largest kosher meatpacking plant in the country. We had immigrants from all over the world who sort of descended upon this town in the early 90s. And so I got super involved with the Mexican community. I was um, you know, very involved um, sort of in, in Spanish, both at school and outside of school. And so uh, being able to pursue languages at Brown was, was exciting as well. And so ultimately uh, on a whim, uh, made the decision to, to, to go to Brown and haven't really looked back. They, well, I do want the audience to know that Postville, Iowa is known as the hometown to the world. Hometown so, of the world. That's right. Yeah, a yeah. very diverse community of uh, rich in industry and culture. So, right. um, which I'm sure is what you found when you arrived there in the boiling pot of Providence, which, to its own right, is is filled with so many different uh, different communities and cultures there. So, tell me what what was the life at Brown like? How did you how were you able to balance your studies with your athletics? I know you've you've told me, uh, which I feel is just a great story. Some really colorful stories about uh, early employers for whom you wrote ads in Portuguese and oh, yeah. and different different sort of uh, marketing materials in different languages. So talk to me about Brown and talk to me about your extracurriculars. Well, look, I was always hustling for a buck. I mean, I was I was fortunate to get some great philanthropic support uh, from Brown, uh, but that only goes so far. And so I was always looking for for an extra buck, and I. Uh, found some listing in the, I think it was in the Portuguese department, the Brazilian and Portuguese studies department, where there was an immigration lawyer who was seeking help translating with his clients, both written um, basically articles that he was putting out in the local uh, Portuguese language newspaper, uh, and then in actually working through um, immigration documentation with some of his clients. And I figured that I had spent a lot of time uh, with the immigrant community in Iowa, and I uh, really wanted to learn Portuguese better. And so I applied for the job, maybe a semester into Portuguese, quite fluent in Spanish at the time, but, uh, but I basically started writing articles about Portuguese or about Brazilian immigration in Portuguese. And then I would turn those articles in as papers and I would have my my Portuguese teacher basically proof my my newspaper articles, which I would then publish and get paid for. So it was a really good intersection. A of real one hand wash the other there. Applied learning is, is very what I good. Call. Yeah, I'd, I'd say yeah, the real world uh, real world experience there. Yeah. So um, that's that's pretty fascinating. And, and as you were in those, you know, whether it be Portuguese or, or Spanish classes in your in your language classes. Um, who are some of the the sorts of people you met? And as a first time, you know, a first generation college student, was you know, how did that shape your experience? And did you kind of find like minded people that that shared a similar experience with you? Well, the best part about language classes is that you are constantly talking to the other students, right? When you think about most classes in college, sure, there might be section breakouts and so forth, but typically people might partner up with friends or teammates and just kind of work through things as as a small group, whereas in the language classes, you're forced to speak with people. And there was such a diverse um, population of, of people from all walks of life at Brown. But candidly, being on the football team with 100 friends built in the first week of school, I did not have to work as hard as other students did to find their place and you know build their communities. And so um, the language classes were a real blessing because it forced me to meet people 
who I otherwise um, might have never had the opportunity to 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 uh, converse with. And that was um, a really great experience. And then ultimately, outside of football, I did have the opportunity to join the uh, the senior class board, and that was really um, just a neat opportunity to to kind of break out of my my typical social circles and get to know um, people uh, who are still friends to this day and, and really kind of plan some of the big um, senior class activities uh, together. That's great. And again, just to, for the recurring theme, I'm sure you met uh, a bunch of really interesting people there that helps you from that pivotal place in your, in your, your life, kind of boost you into your career. But any, any folks that you'd like to highlight as mentors or, or kind of leaders that made an impact on you then? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the great um, parts of being a part of the football program is that there was a built-in community, and they really um, were, at that time, there, there were a handful of leaders that were working to build out mentoring programs and really do more career support to connect um, alumni from the football program with the current student-athletes. And one, that was a way to, um, I think, support right? Retention and, and keeping people, uh, you know, in the program, but also deliver on the promise that everybody sold, you know, on that recruiting trip about access to opportunities. And, and that was something that I really just embraced, you know, given the kind of family background and, and the fact that I didn't have a lot of connections or relationships or really understand what career paths were possible. And, and so I uh, was super fortunate to have uh, an alumnus named John Skinner, who I met at one of our mentoring events that we did, um, who just took me under his wing and really helped me start to understand, hey, you're studying Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. You've got this international relations background. How does that translate to a job, right? There's not necessarily uh, a, a whole bunch of entry-level jobs that are looking for that exact skill set, uh, or at least that's what I thought. And, and he introduced um, really the idea of spending a couple of years in business, building some fundamental business skills, such that I would then have uh, an opportunity to, to explore a whole host of, of career paths beyond that. And he strongly encouraged that I check out both the investment banking world and the consulting world, both of which I knew absolutely nothing about. Um, and, and I was like this piece of clay that he molded into a passable sort of interviewee uh, in, in the investment banking world, which ultimately led me to get an opportunity at Lehman Brothers uh, and then there was an opportunity uh, at a firm in Chicago called William Blair and Company, which I'd, I'd never heard of. I'd, of course, heard of Lehman Brothers, um, but I ended up you know, going out to Chicago, feeling enough Midwestern connection that it just seemed like a better fit for me um, in the spirit of first, my first time in New York uh, City, my first time in Times Square was going to my interview at Lehman Brothers. And so that's a lot to take in, uh, you know, as a, it's, it's the, the pinnacle of culture there. You've, you've got, you know, uh, as a, tw- I probably bought sunglasses, Rolex on my way in. Oh yeah. I'm so excited that people were trying to sell me stuff. It was, it was, uh, no, it was, it was a very uh, poignant experience and look, ultimately decided to, to pursue the opportunity in Chicago. Coincidentally, the, the CEO of William Blair was a Brown alum. Uh, one of the the folks that was on the investment banking team was a Brown alum that had not all that much to do with my um, decision to go there, but it just created, again, some familiarity given how new this whole world uh, was to me. And so I graduated and moved out to Chicago in uh, the summer of 2004. Well, I think, I mean, I, I you know, 
to the, to the credit of, of, you know, creating community and then especially those that you, you establish in your, your college days, while it's definitely not ever the one reason maybe you choose something, I think the fact that you did have those connections, it does, it speaks to the value of, of an education, not only your personal one, but that the community it built around you. So glad to hear that there were other Brown folks there uh, at the, uh, at, at William Blair and company when you, when you're able to get there. So talk to me about you're, you're this new lump of clay. You're at, you're in the investment banking world. What are some lessons you're learning? And then how does that, that how does that catapult you to the next stage of your education? Because this is not the last, uh, the last stop on your education journey. I showed up at William Blair and company the first day and was such an eager beaver. I remember that I, uh, at the security desk, there was another first year analyst who was checking in next to me. And I basically was like, hi, want to be my best friend? And he was like, yes. And uh, that was a Ahad Khan who actually went on to become a groomsman in my wedding and vice versa. And it was just like this moment of, I knew no one. It was like, everybody was a new potential friend. And uh, at the same time, the work was incredibly humbling. I mean, I was so unprepared to do the financial analysis, to do the Excel modeling. I mean, my skills translating Portuguese in a mediocre fashion were just not that applicable to the first year analyst curriculum. And so it was, it was a super humbling experience. And I did uh, you know, try to fake it uh, until I made it, but I had a, a couple of great mentors there who, again, sort of saw um, something and were willing to go above and beyond. Even my office mate, I mean, basically we were paired with, uh, I had a second year analyst paired with me. His name was Brian Doherty and he had gone to Villanova and he'd studied finance and he was just so prepared for this work. I was completely unprepared, um, but he was willing to, to help me out. And, um, and that was just a recurring theme of, you know, mentors, not only being years ahead of me, but even that, you know, the mentor who was one year ahead of me um, playing a big role. And I'm, I'm grateful to Brian and remain, remain friends uh, to this day. And, and ultimately, you know, I was thrown into this world where uh, I had never even thought about the word MBA. I'm not sure that I knew what an MBA was, uh, even when I graduated from college. And um, every single person that was in a senior leadership position at William Blair had an MBA. And I had never thought of the word private equity before, but either staying on investment banking or pursuing roles in private equity was, was kind of the common career path after a, a couple of years. And I, I didn't even know what private equity was. If you don't really know what it was and you're listening, it's very simple. Investment banking is like being a real estate agent. Private equity is like buying the house. And that's the difference. And so um, I went on to, to have an opportunity to work uh, at the largest private equity fund in Chicago called Ma Madison Dearborn Partners. The, um, the CEO, one of the co-CEOs was a Brown alum and trustee. Uh, the other co-CEO was the president of the Harvard Alumni Association. And so they were just deeply connected to their respective alma maters. And um, uh, that was another um, just incredibly challenging, but extremely valuable, um, um, you know, moment in my career. And, and again, everybody there that had advanced into a leadership role had an MBA. And so all of a sudden I was applying to MBA programs and learning what that was all about and trying to get recommendation letters and, and ultimately um, applied to Harvard, Wharton and Stanford and got into Harvard and Wharton and decided uh, to go to, to Harvard Business School and, and started there in the fall of 2008, pretty much 
the moment that Lehman Brothers was collapsing and that the financial crisis was underway. And so I had an opportunity to sort of watch from the sidelines uh, during what was, uh, you know, a really challenging period for a lot of my former colleagues. Well, that's, you know, they, they say that in, in times of great disruption, that's where innovation can often be bred. Yeah. So you are now at Harvard, you're studying at, the, at HBS, and you are asked by Brown to help with some of their fundraising efforts. So, so this is all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm insinuating where this is going, but something tells me this was not the greatest experience and may have given you some sort of spark of genius during your, your business school days. Well, look, outside of work in Chicago, I'd gotten very involved with the local Brown Club. And I just basically worked and I did stuff with the Brown community. And it was a great experience. And uh, uh, when I got out to HBS, my fifth reunion was was right around the corner. And um, there was a woman named Sarah Santos who came uh, from the Brown Development Office and met with me and handed me a packet and said, hey, look, like, would you be willing to uh, get involved with your with your reunion campaign? And Um, I said yes. And the process that followed really introduced me to this world of of fundraising. And I got a spreadsheet from their database and it was, you know, class of 2004 and they had people listed in alphabetical order. And it was clear that um, most of the information was out of date. This was during a really tumultuous time in the job market. And so it just, it just was a struggle to sort of a work in a spreadsheet and B, you know, get the information that I needed to do my job successfully. At the same time, I absolutely, I loved the process. Like I loved the fundraising. I loved securing the gift. I loved being involved with, um, with the reunion experience, even though it was really challenging. And so for whatever reason, I came back, you know, for my second year of business school, just wanting to know more about this world of alumni engagement and development. It had really shaped my entire career path, right? From, you know, having the opportunity to go to Brown, thanks to philanthropic support, to having mentors from the Brown Football Association, to getting involved in the Brown Club of Chicago. And all along the way, I was getting PDFs and Excel sheets of largely inaccurate information. And this was at a moment when, you know, it's 2009, 2010. Yes, the financial crisis is going on, but there's a ton of innovation. Social media is exploding. Um, mobile a- applications. Smartphone, iPhone, right? 2007, right? So I remember being in a in a uh, one of our case uh, discussions at Harvard, adamantly defending why BlackBerry would dominate the mobile phone landscape for years to come. So I was way off on that call. Um, but that's just a, a moment in time where we were just on the cusp of, of Apple and Android really overtaking the, the BlackBerry. And with that, the whole app ecosystem was emerging. And it just seemed like um, as other sectors were being reinvented at the intersection of social and mobile, why wasn't this world of education fundraising that, you know, helped kids like me go to college? And, and so I continued to dig and learn about the systems and the sector and interviewed a bunch of people that worked in the space and everyone cited a pretty depressing technology landscape that was a decade or two behind and not a single person indicated that no there's no problem to be solved here every single person was excited about the opportunity to start to connect the dots between social media platforms and donor databases to start to deliver experiences in native mobile um 
uh, work that would be commensurate with what we were experiencing in our consumer lives. And so I just decided to throw my hat in the ring with our business school uh, competition with our, with our, um, sorry, uh, entrepreneurship competition. And I remember getting my scorecard from the judges and one of the judges worked at a, at a really respected fund in Boston called Polaris Ventures. And he wrote on my scorecard, I would invest. And I was like, what? Invest in what? <laughs> this PowerPoint that I just talked about for 10 minutes. And I remember following up with him. His name was Bob Guyman and meeting up with him. And he was like, yeah, this is how venture capitalists invest. Like we hear a good idea and then we offer money. I'm like, that is crazy. He ultimately did not invest just to be totally clear. Um, but it was enough. <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, yeah, Bob, if you're out there. But it was enough of a spark to encourage me to give it a shot. And I decided to start a company. I named it Evertrue after Brown's fight song, Evertrue to Brown. And, um, and we got off to the races. That's great. I'm also sensing this theme, which uh, if, if anyone caught, caught my interview with you, sensing a, a similar theme that, 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 that binds us is just because you have a lack of, of information at the onset does not stop you from, from starting the journey, which, uh, which I think is just a, a very strong, very it strong story to tell. Stuff, right. Like if I had all the information, I might have done it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes knowing too much is, is the, uh, the enemy of, of getting going, but, um, but you know, in, in the spirit of mentorship though, there was really a pivotal moment that when you think about those, those back to the future inflection points where, you know, if this happens on, you know, October 8th, 1888 or whatever, it's like that, that was this inflection point. There was a conference at HBS right after I graduated and I had a classmate, uh, helped me create a basic website, but there was really nothing to it. And there was a conference where basically all of the leading venture capitalists from the East Coast were coming together. It was called Venture Summit East. And all the kind of who's who entrepreneurs in Boston were going to be there. And I remember seeing a sign for it, seeing all these people who were going to be there and wanting to go so bad, but it was $2,000 to attend. And that was not going to happen. So I reached out to the organizer and I basically gave him my story I'm a recent grad. I'm in the early innings of starting a company. Do you need any volunteers for this conference? And he's like, sure, you can come work the registration desk. And so I went, and, and then when people aren't registering, you can go and listen in to these sessions. And so I worked the registration desk, um, basically sneaked my way into this conference. And at lunch, where I'm surrounded by all of these people who are the who's who of, of venture and entrepreneurship, I happened to sit down next to Jeff Busking, who is a, uh, both a sort of investor in residence, if you will, at HBS, but he was also a venture capitalist at Flybridge in Boston. And I had gotten to know him as a student. So he was like the one person at this whole conference that I knew. I sat next to him and he introduced me to two people, Walt Doyle and Scott Kersner. I had no idea who either one of them uh, was, but Walt was this incredibly dynamic guy who apparently had just, uh, you know, he'd taken over as CEO of this company where that was growing really fast. And it was one of the first like consumer mobile startups in Boston. And he was just an unbelievably charismatic guy. And, and he wanted to know all about my story. And this other guy, Scott Kersner, is on the other side of the table taking notes the whole time. And I'm like, why is this guy taking notes about my conversation with Walt? Um, long story short, Scott is the lead reporter for the innovation economy at the Boston Globe. 
And the next day, he basically publishes a story about Evertrue, this new startup <laughs> from Harvard Business School. And there is nothing to it. And oh my gosh, the story, uh, people start <laughs> applying for jobs. I've got <laughs> out who want to help me with my books. I'm like, there are no books here, people. But but it, it created, you know, it just made it more real, right? There are these inflection sure. points where if that article doesn't get published, it's less real. I'm less right. committed. And at the same time, Walt followed up and he said, hey, look, I just moved into this, this great office space in the North End. Um, come work out of this space. Get out of, your, get out of your apartment. And so I started going down to the North End, the most quintessential, like, tech startup, brick and beam, cool space, people riding around on skateboards. And I had no idea what any of these roles were, what the company did, but I'm like, this is amazing. I felt like I was at Google, right? Or, or, or how you would picture um, that, that sort of quintessential startup experience. And I, I, I got to sit in an office, basically watching this company hit its rocket ship inflection point. They were hiring people constantly. There were press coming in. Venture capitalists were coming in to meet Walt, and then he would kick him over to say hello to me. And it was just this, I mean, there's no chance we're on this podcast right now if Walt hadn't given me that desk for whatever reason, which wouldn't have happened if I hadn't volunteered to work the registration desk. And so at those early stages of the entrepreneurial journey, it's just amazing how these little inflection points really do shape your entire trajectory. And I'm sure you have those moments as well, but long story short, Walt supported our application to the Techstars Accelerator. Other than Y Combinator, Techstars is considered sort of the leading accelerator. Uh, That whole program is about mentorship where they basically take early stage founding teams, surround them with tried and true experienced mentors and let good things happen. And so you know, Walt's mentorship led to the mentorship in Techstars, Katie Ray, Reed Sturdivant, all of these people who then became my mentors ended up investing in the company, making referrals to our early candidates. I mean, it's just amazing um, how one thing leads to another. And, and ultimately, you know, here we are just over 10 years later. I love that. That's such an amazing story. And this this Walt guy sounds like an amazing person on, on top of an, an absolute treasure trove of people you, you've been mentioning. So um that's such such wonderful what wonderful story to hear. So um, now let's fast forward. You you're in this space. You're entering this new world. You're meeting with venture capitalists. You're starting a team. Whether people are sending you in something from the Boston Globe or the Boston Insider, Boston Globe, yeah, Boston Globe. Um, you know, you're, you're getting you're getting kind of inundated. Um, but you start to assemble a team. Tell me about that early team, and then tell me how'd you go out? How'd you start drumming up business? And who was, who was that first customer? So compound question. I'm almost getting embarrassed about how much like luck is, is sort of involved. Luck is everything. Uh, Luck is everything. Look, so founding team, right? As great as it was to meet Walt, I was meeting venture capitalists and I basically was saying, Hey, look, I've got this idea. Here's my, here's my backstory. Um, I've got this idea for a mobile application that would be kind of a V1 product. And they would all say, well, who's your CTO or who's your technical co-founder? Are you going to build this? And I'm like, no, that's why I need your venture capital money. So Mm -hmm. I can then go and hire that CTO to go build it. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like we want to see the CTO before we're going to give you the money. So I was in this like chicken and the egg problem because then I'm out meeting CTOs. They're like, well, 
how are you going to pay me? Well, once you join, then I'll be able to get the venture capitalist. <laughs> like, all right, sounds cool. Come back to me when you're further along. And so, you know, long story short, I, I, I met up with, um, I went to this iPhone developers meetup at the Asgard, which is a bar in Central Square. And I basically, you know, they call on people or they let people at the beginning do their elevator pitch. So I stood there with my phone in this like prototype app that had been built by an offshore team. And I'm like, I'm Brent, this is my story. This is what I'm doing. And this guy came up to me afterwards, which I was super excited about. Who's was like, I am an iPhone developer. I'm like, that's amazing. And, um, and, he, and, and then he said, I'm not interested in working on this project with you, which was a little soul crushing. But then he said, I've got a friend who is looking for his next thing that you should meet. So I walk over to the other side of the bar and this guy who, you know, I'm 6'2", he's 6'5", just chowing down chicken wings, um, you know, basically gives me a fist pound because of all the, the chicken wings uh, that, that he's dealing with and is like, I'm Eric. And, um, and I go on to learn his story. He had just finished um, a, a stint as a product manager at a, at a business intelligence startup. But he had also just finished his MBA the year before at Boston University, and he had gotten really involved with the entrepreneurship program at BU uh, and had studied at Rochester Institute of Technology undergrad. And so he had this real intersection of, of having been uh, a software developer at a variety of startups. Some had done well, some had, had really struggled, um, and then had also transitioned in more of a product management role um, by way of his work uh, in the, the BU um, entrepreneurship community. And so we hit it off and it was enough where he was looking for something new and he had a high risk tolerance to start something early. And I was looking for somebody that had his skill set that might help break that chicken and the egg problem. And so we spent about a month founder dating where we would actually go and meet up at an old, uh, at one of the, the office spaces at, at Harvard, because it was halfway between where I lived and where he lived in Arlington. And we would whiteboard things. And then we would, uh, you know, get on video chats together and um, ultimately decided to go on a road trip to his alma mater, RIT, and, and run some proof of concept and, uh, by the alumni team there. Uh, and on that trip, we got two speeding tickets. Uh, we had no money in the bank and, and, um, and we got two speeding tickets. We stopped at RIT, we stopped at Cornell on the way back and came back to Boston. And at that point we decided we're working pretty well together. We've got a good rapport. Um, and there's clearly a market opportunity based on all the feedback that we'd received. And so we, on a whiteboard at HBS, basically, you know, handshook on, on a co-founding agreement. Um, and that's like the number one way to not go meet a co-founder that you're going to spend years building a company with. You don't go... Like I met a guy at a bar and we decided to partner up together. A lot, a lot, like, of, a lot of life stories start that way. Right. So it was just like, not the, like you want, right. What do they want to know? Is this a, a, a team that has a rapport that has a track record relationships when the going gets tough, how are they going to, uh, you, you know, get through things together? We had none of that. Um, but we did have a genuinely authentic connection. Eric's an amazing human. And, um, and we just got after it together. And he basically, um, took this, this free course that Stanford had just released about how to become an iPhone developer. And he taught himself how to code in iOS, which was brand new at that time and started rebuilding the prototype application. And then with that, we were able to go to Techstars. And now instead of it just being 
you know, eager Brent without the technical partner, they're like, okay, this is a solid team. Like this is what we're looking for. That broke the cycle. We got into tech stars and then, um, you know, basically he was building, I was selling and in part, uh, you know, on the way we got connected with, with, um, our third co-founder, Jesse Bardo, where I basically went to a trade show, uh, and, and again, basically snuck into the trade show. And instead of having my own booth, I stood at the edge of someone else's booth. Uh, and in doing that, I met a whole bunch of other vendors, including Jesse. Uh, and he was a passionate, you know, young alumnus from, uh, Andover and Wesleyan. And, and he was fired up about what we were doing and was, was social media consulting for schools and decided to get on board. And so it was just another example of, you know, happen to go to this conference, happen to borrow the edge of a booth, happen to meet somebody who happened to go on and become, uh, you know, a pivotal part of our team and, you know, a cultural uh, just foundation that, you know, still persists to this day. And, and so, yeah, I mean, those early days, it's just putting yourself out there and being ready for opportunity, but, but not over-engineering it because nothing that I just described to you was planned. Um, it all just sort of happened and you got to embrace it. Um, and yeah, those are some of the most just amazing memories to think about as we, you know, as we now bring our teams together today, um, you know, even like the culture and the way that we treat each other and, and how we communicate. I mean, so much of that is formed in the earliest moments and that's the stuff that's almost impossible, uh, you know, to change. It's easy to change your product or your, your strategy, but, you know, the cultural components, um, really persist. Again, uh, I just love the story, and it does. It gives me, it always gives me goosebumps going back to those early days where you, <laughs> when you really think about it, you're like, how in the world did those dots all connect to get us to this fantastic uh, mountaintop that, that we're at today? But so you, you've now got this team, you're, you're out pitching. What are those, how, how do you start picking up steam, and what do you find about the higher ed market? What are you finding that you really love? What are you finding that might still be challenging? Uh, kind of tell me, tell me the path you, you find yourself on. Well, I would say that early on, um, we were very solution focused instead of problem focused. So, like, we had an idea for the app, what the V1 app would do. And it was like, let's build the app, let's sell the app. And we sort of took for granted that we really understood the industry, that we really understood the pain points. And I'm sure that if we had spent a little more time just getting to know the different roles and getting to know the different parts of an advancement org and being more thoughtful about really what are your pain points, um, that would have pointed us in a different direction, even though we would have stayed focused on the sector. And, um, and so we, we did pick a problem and there was a problem there um, but we really ran after that without fully understanding the, the breadth of the opportunity in the space. And so long story short, uh, we did have a good V1 product, a mobile application focused on uh, basically creating, a, you know, Yelp for alumni, right? Like, you know, take the old print directory, put it on your phone, uh, make it easy to use. And the reception, like people were excited, right? This was the moment when like, there's an app for that was the big ad campaign. And mm -hmm. it was like, our sales pitch was like, there's an app for this. And, and people, uh, we were able to draft just the broader momentum of the app store. Um, and in doing that, just in the spirit of like how these things connect, I remember at this moment, all of the lead requests came to my inbox, right? We had a, you know, the HubSpot marketing system, but all of the leads came right to me. And one Saturday morning, I got a lead from a school in Utah. 
And there was a guy who basically was like, I'm on the board at this school in Utah. Uh, I would like to learn more about your, your product. And for whatever reason, I looked this guy up and he was like the president of Ticketmaster. And he had this like really, really strong entrepreneurial background. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'm happy to do the demo for the school, but also I'd love to meet with you one-on-one, you know, either via phone or if you're ever in Boston, let me know. He's like, I'll be in Boston on Friday. I'm visiting my son at Exeter. Uh, I'll come by your office. And so he comes by my office. His name's Tom Stockham, amazing entrepreneur out in Utah. Um, Take him through my story. And he's like, have you ever met the folks at Bain Capital Ventures? I'm like, "I, I have not. He's like, would you like to? I'm like, yes. He makes an introduction to Mike Krupka. I meet this guy, Mike Krupka, who's the managing partner at Bain Capital Ventures, who also had just led his 25th reunion campaign at Dartmouth. And he experienced all the same challenges that I did. There you go. He basically immediately leaned in and said, I'd like to invest in the company. I'm like, what? Like, I got a lead form from a school in Utah. And that just led to my Series A from Bain Capital Ventures. And so there was just you know, for all the challenges, there, there's been a lot of really, really good, uh, good luck along the way. That's awesome. And, you know, I think, um, as, as I share with you working this, this, uh, in this space, especially in, in higher advancement, there are so many amazing people you meet both as clients and as these connectors and just advisors, um, whether they be directly at the organizations, whether they be consultants, I guess, just again, in this theme of mentorship, um, who, you know, if you, if you had a few, you know, you can't highlight them all cause we'd be here all day, For but sure. if there are a few relationships you've, you've fostered over those years, uh, who might a few of those be just to give some, some sweet shout outs to this, to yeah. this audience. Look, there's a guy, um, there, there's a guy named Andy Shandlin early on who was, um, a Brown alum working in the alumni relations space. He was one of the only bloggers in the space. He was really elevating the voice of the sector and I was fortunate to meet him early on. Um, and then he immediately made an introduction to uh, a guy named uh, Travis Warren, who was running a company called Whipple Hill up in New Hampshire. We ended up partnering sure. with that business. Uh, Travis was a great mentor and, and still is a friend to this day. Uh, and then there were just early customers, people like Jim Zimmerman, who was the um, director of development at the Middlesex School in Concord, Massachusetts, who you know just had this deep network of relationships in the, in the, uh, independent school fundraising world, which I knew nothing about. Uh, and he really took me under his wing. Um, a guy named Bill Kissick, who was running development at St. Paul's school. There's just this great group of practitioners who are personal friends. I mean, that's the one thing about this sector is people are not competing. They are not only colleagues, but they are personal friends. And I was just fortunate to get plugged into this group of friends who, you know, saw something in me and our team and, and was willing to, to help point us in the right direction. Um, and, and so really thinking about even some of those early client relationships where yes, they were, they were paying us for our service, but uh, th- they were offering so much more by way of their mentorship um, and, and guidance. And, and some of those folks I'm still in touch with to this day. And, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to think about the impact that they had on our early trajectory. Well, great shout out to, to all those folks. And I'm sure there's, you know, with, with your Rolodex and the relationships you've built, you could literally be here all day telling great stories about every single client and prospective client that there is out there. So um, there will be more podcasts in the future for that. Um, so, you know, 
not to fast forward too far in the future, but here we are. It's 2022. Thank you and Evertrue. We have joined forces, um, bringing I think this this uh, this industry in a in a new and exciting trajectory. Tell me, what are you excited about as as we come together? As you think about the the future ahead, what are things that get you really jazzed up? And uh, and what would you what would you like the uh, the audience to know? Well. You know, as we went through the merger process, JD, a couple of times we we would use the expression, it feels like we're co-founding a new company. And that is what it feels like. It's it's the best of, of all worlds in my mind because we aren't totally green, brand new entrepreneurs who really know nothing, but are just going to relentlessly will something into ex- existence. Like we're still going to be relentless, but we've learned a lot about entrepreneurship. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've Uh, learned so much about the industry. A lot of the things that I wish I had just sat down and really understood before we did anything, we've been able to learn through osmosis and trial and error over the last decade. And very few entrepreneurs get to work on a company for 10 years. And I have just crossed that mark. You're, you know, rounding the corner on six or seven. And we now have an opportunity as a new entity, you know, to bring the best of what your team has learned, what our team has learned, the best of our client relationships, and have some experience under our belts such that uh, we can, I think, really put forth a vision that is much more connected to what the sector really needs. And if we were able to accomplish what we've been able to accomplish, knowing as little as we did with as few connections as we had, with all of the luck that was required along the way, as long as we don't give up, there is no way we are not going to solve these problems that we've set out to solve with the relationships we have with our customers, with the amazing teams we've, we've developed, with the inbound flow of candidates who are excited about joining us on this mission, as long as we don't give up, as long as we stay persistent, we are gonna figure this out and it is gonna be I think more and more energizing as we get closer and closer to solving these problems, as we get um, more connected to the philanthropic outcomes that help kids like me go to college. And it all comes back to the opportunity to really build something at the intersection of um, social good and philanthropy while building a really exciting and successful business that will last for decades beyond the, beyond us. And, and, and I've never, felt as much conviction or confidence in that. I never would have talked about what's our 2030 vision. You know, I probably wouldn't have said that two years ago because it was like, how are we going to get to 2020? And, and it was all hands on deck just to get to this milestone. But now I feel like we're in a spot with the scale and the support from our investors and our team to really start thinking much bigger um, and and to start thinking about 10 years ahead and, and how we're going to shape the company and the strategy and the team today to get there. Well, still, still love those happy accidents as they come. But to your point, I think we have a lot of uh, foundation underneath us to, to guide us in the right direction and an amazing support from, from both, both our teams and, and partners. So uh, I share that sentiment. And the most important question maybe for some, some uh, slice of the audience, are you hiring? We are. In fact, <laughs> I mean, this is wild. So it is, it is January 19th. And on Monday, I did a call with Gail, who's our chief people officer and was featured on the Raise podcast. 
And we had seven people start just on Monday, which was exciting and terrifying at the same time. Um, but we do have big growth expectations. And uh, I will say that we've just been blown away by the, the talent pool. You know, we've leaned heavily into remote work, being able to create um, opportunities to connect with the best professionals who are passionate about what we're passionate about, that have the skills that we need. Um, it's been incredibly liberating and, I, and I'm super excited. So yeah, check out the careers page. And if there's nothing on the careers page that maps to your skills or interests, shoot us an email. I'm brent at evertrue.com, jd at thankyou.com. Let us know what you're excited about, what you're passionate about. If you're a customer of ours, things that you see us doing poorly or things that you think we could do better. Don't be shy. Like let us know and uh, crazier things have happened. If, if your story has taught us anything, it's always take the chance, shoot that email, knock shoot. on that door, volunteer at that event. That's the first step in the right direction towards anything. Well, Brent, you've proven just as a uh, professional on this side of the microphone as the, uh, the host side of the microphone, I will begrudgingly give you back the mantle as host of the race podcast, but been an absolute pleasure talking with you, getting to know you better and getting to know your story and uh, certainly be able to share that with, with uh, this entire audience. So thank you for your time. JD, thanks for coming in and, uh, and, and pinch hitting here. I actually did not know this was happening. I, I had seen that we had a recording schedule, but I didn't really realize that I was going to be the guest. So we'll there you go. You, you're good off the, you're good off the cuff. So nicely well, done. Thanks um, everybody. Uh, We'll see you next time. With that, Brent signing off with today's guest, me from Narragansett, Rhode Island. Take care, everybody. See you out there.